0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: So, Molly, I'm, I'm sorry that I feel like I, I bullied you onto the pod today.
0: I would call it you told me um onto the onto the pod. I would not I would not say I felt bullied, but um, lesson should be that if you suggest in one of our meetings that someone should save it for the pod, Scott will just decide that you're gonna save it
2: for the pod.
3: I consider that all the consent I need from my co-host to invite somebody on the podcast. <laughs>
2: We're always happy to have you, Molly. <laughs>
3: we only invite Alan to those Monday meetings to bully people. That's what he's here for. He's our muscle, you see.
1: Yeah. Every senior editor plays an important role. You know, Molly brings congressional expertise. Quinta brings that political theory, journalistic flair. I'm the mean one.
3: <laughs> we, we all have a part to play. You're the mean girl. Exactly. You know, the that's, the nicest, one. that's the nicest thing you said about me in a long time, Scott. There Thank you, you go. Of course, of course, anytime.
0: It is not Wednesday, so we are not obligated to be wearing pink um, for um, for Alan's stuff. And in fact,
2: listeners, none I of us are wearing pink. pink so so <laughs> it will happen, to be clear.
1: It will happen.
3: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, aka Dork and Mindy. Nadoo, Nadu nanu nanu to my co-host alan rosenstein glad to have you here this week i'm
1: glad to be here though i have no idea what that was a reference
3: to well we'll get to it in a second nanu nanu to you my other co-host quinta <laughs> jurassic how are you
2: I also have no idea what that is a reference to.
3: Well, let's see if our secret fourth, not so secret, our fourth co-host this week, uh, or our special guest, Brookings Senior Fellow Molly Reynolds. Molly, new to, new to you as well. Do you have any idea what I'm saying or what I'm talking about?
0: <laughs> I, I think I might be learning in real time about the existence of some sort of Mork and Mindy like, reboot. Is that, is that what we're doing?
3: Not a reboot, just going straight back to the original thing. Dork and Mindy, Rational Security 2.0, the sequel. Because Dork and Mindy was a sequel to Happy Days. It was a spinoff.
0: Scott's doing oh, some cuts here. You have a set of cultural references that um, are apparently lost on the other three uh, millennials in this.
3: Case. These are the cultural references of someone who did not have cable TV and watched a lot of reruns throughout their entire childhood as a more or less latchkey child. Nanu Nanu is what uh, Mork would say on uh, on uh, Mork and Mindy. It was his way, his, his interstellar greeting. He was uh-huh. Nanu Nanu. And he was Robin Williams as an alien in overalls most of the time. Nanu Sorry.
1: Nanu to you too, Scott.
3: Thank you. Um, well, we are excited to have Molly Reynolds, our special guest here, uh, along with our two co-guests as we get into the How Many Cs in Accountability edition this week, where we are here to deal with a number of cases where we have leaders engage in bad behavior and big questions about whether or not we will be able to hold them accountable. Topic one, the butchers of Bucha. Russian troops who recently retreated from the Kiev suburb of Bucha appear to have engaged in a weeks-long campaign of violence against the Ukrainian civilians living there, leading some, including President Biden, to call for a war crimes trial. Why would Russia do this, and how should the United States and the world respond? Topic two, to refer or not to refer, that is the question. I'm going full ham on that one, guys, full ham, full hamlet. Even as they rush to get ready for public hearings, January 6th committee members have begun to cast shade on the idea that they will produce a criminal referral of President Trump or anyone else for that matter, other than for contempt of Congress for refusing to comply with its subpoenas. Is this the right move on the committee's part? And topic three, when Texas messes with you. The Supreme Court recently heard oral argument in Torres v, Texas Department of Public Safety, the first case to seriously test the limits of congressional war powers in several decades. What should we expect from this case, and what will it tell us about how our new Supreme Court views war powers and national security? Alan for our first topic, let me hand it over to you
1: so as the uh war in Ukraine uh, enters uh, yet another phase in which the uh, Ukrainians are slowly pushing the Russians back uh, from Kiev and the Russians are. Uh, regrouping and consolidating in the east and southeast of the country. Um, We're getting reports of, uh, or not just reports, but we're we're seeing evidence of truly horrific conduct uh, on behalf of the Russian troops. This is happening all over the country. Obviously, there have been atrocities uh, committed in uh, the the port city of uh, Mariupol, uh, where the Russians have targeted a a hospital. But the the latest findings are coming out of Bucha, which is a a suburb town uh, outside of Kiev, uh, which the Russians uh, occupy for several weeks and have since left, uh, and the reports coming out of that town are are truly i mean they're truly horrifying uh there's a there's a really uh, extensive uh, human rights watch uh, report which we'll uh, link to uh, that goes through reports of uh, executions of rape of civilians of uh, you know women and children running out of buildings trying to surrender but being you know shot by by Russian soldiers obviously there's still a lot we don't know. Obviously, there are, you know more facts need to to come out, and there's to be more independent reviews, um, but all indications suggest that at least in Bucha and if in Bucha then likely in other places as well, the Russian army has been seriously violating the the uh, laws of war with respect to to civilians, and uh, almost certainly we'll we'll hear about more atrocities in, in the coming weeks you know there's, there's obviously a lot to talk about in terms of accountability, but I think the first question I want to ask uh, is and maybe i'll I'll pose this to you, Scott why would the russians do this i mean just putting aside the kind of obvious evilness of of this action what possible strategic purpose if any could it serve for the russians to treat civilians in this way w- wouldn't have been obvious that at some point this sort of treatment was going to backfire either because they were going to turn a occupied population against them or in the case that they were going to retreat from these uh, cities, which was always a possibility, news of these atrocities would inevitably come out and, and they would face you know, serious sanction uh, from the West. And we'll, we'll talk about what, if anything, the West can do. Um, but it does just strike me that, that again, just putting aside the, the evilness of this, it's, a, it's also just a bizarre thing
3: for a, a theoretically professional army to do. That's a good question, and there's a really active debate going on about this topic among various stripes of policy experts, a lot of military veterans, a lot of people who engage in strategy, a lot of Russian uh, historians kind of digging into different aspects of it. And I I think it's useful to kind of think of it along two spectrums. One is a policy element and one is kind of a side effects of policies argument, right? And, And the reality is probably somewhere in between the two or some admixture of the two. On the policy side, there is an idea that this sort of brutality, which is not unfamiliar to warfare, is sadly a part of warfare, certainly throughout human history, including into the 20th and 21st century. There's really similar accounts of things happening in the ISIS conflict by the Islamic state, uh, in of course, the Yugoslav conflict, famously in Chechnya and Russia's other internal conflicts. You see this sort of brutality as an effort. Uh, People see it as a means of intimidating... And encouraging, you know, kind of docility by an occupied population. Um, You know, you take out men of military age, which often can mean boys of military age or approaching military age. Um, You intimidate the civilian population, you reward cooperators, you punish those who aren't cooperators. And that there's some sort of strategic logic there. Now, is that clear that that makes sense in this case? Is it something that we associate with professional militaries? No, is the answer to those things. Certainly not comply with the Geneva Convention. It is actually the exact type of behavior Geneva Conventions were intended to suppress and limit and prevent from happening in these sorts of ways, right? There's, there You are allowed to control civilian populations in certain ways under the Geneva Conventions, nothing like this. So it is a prohibited military tactic, but one that you know, nonetheless keeps recurring throughout human history. There are also maybe other strategic elements to it. You know, you are trying to dehumanize this population to get your own forces, be willing to do things more comfortable doing things against them. This can feed into that. And so there are other kind of policy strains that come around it. On well, the other side of that, you also, this can be the consequence when you have units under stress. Um, this is what the United States would say, frankly, for most of the allegations it has from at wars in Afghanistan and Iraq for its own personnel engaging in war crimes and similar atrocities, of which there are cases, although not quite, frankly, at, at a scale like this that, that we're aware of in recent memory. You know, those cases, often it is individuals or units under extreme stress that have faced significant losses that are under regular attack, um, where individuals might have, although there's obviously something much larger than an individual involved, might have mental illness issues that get triggered. Um, Maybe they're in leadership positions, and so they create opportunities for their subordinates to engage in behaviors they may not otherwise engage in or even encourage them to do it. You have poor unit discipline. You have poor unit supplies. All these things we see in Russia, right? The Russian military is not disciplined. The Russian military has poor supplies. The units that were Russian units that were occupying this town in Ukraine came under an incredibly heavy Ukrainian artillery assault um, shortly after coming into the city and kind of were stopped here by that artillery assault, at least according to one account I've read, early in the conflict and suffered really heavy losses. So that might be a sign that this is, is less of a deliberate product of policy, and perhaps there might be some element of this being the unintended consequences or perhaps negligently resulting consequences of a lot of other policy decisions that led to how russia is engaging this warfare Um, we know the biden administration has come out and said this is a, a policy this is something that affirmatively is being done recently Secretary of State Tony blinken said that I think just this morning or last night in addressing this in immediate comments whether that's rooted in intelligence they have some insight into the, the commands coming down whether uh it is uh, or whether that's rooted in their perception about how Russia goes about this because Russia these incidents are not unique to this particular conflict that Russia has been involved in you know we ha- we have to wait and see I think the big test is going to be how this same tactic is applied in other areas under Russian occupation, unfortunately. And in the coming days, as Ukrainian forces are recovering more and more territory, I think we'll get a sense as to what extent this is part of a deliberate campaign or a case where military lack of discipline uh, really had really tragic circumstances for this one community.
1: I, I appreciate the importance of recognizing that war crimes can occur not just intentionally, well, not unintentionally, that's not quite the right word, but they can occur not as a necessary plan from the top thing, but because of as as you say, you know, military forces under stress, which again, of course, is not to excuse any of that, but it is a thing that, you know, we know happens historically. I I, I do wonder how plausible though that is in this case, just because this is happening so early on in the war, right? I mean, you know, in, in previous situations where you have war crimes. Um, you know, whether, you know, committed by the United States, right, in in recent wars or in Vietnam, for example, and other conflicts, often you have that in the context of a war that's been going on for a very, very, very long time. You have, you know, military forces that have been taking heavy losses for a long time. And over time, discipline breaks down, morale breaks down, and you can, you know, get this sort of behavior. This is happening at the very beginning of a war, right? This is happening almost immediately, basically. And and I, I think, for me, that, that's why it it's makes it a little more difficult for me to think that, you know, the first thing the Russians appear to do when they take Bucha is start rounding up and executing people. And that makes me, you know, that, that to me suggests that it's maybe a little less likely, though of course we don't know, right? And we'll hopefully find out in the coming weeks and months. That makes it to me a little less likely that this really is just a case of, you know, undisciplined soldiers, you know, who's, you know morale and discipline is breaking down, and more likely that this really is an intentional intentional war crime. I don't know. Quinta, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, to that point, there's been some reporting on... Potential war crimes and brutal treatment by Russian troops in other Ukrainian towns. The The Washington Post, for example, has a, a long report about what happened in a village in southern Ukraine, where people were taken away and and killed, and similar atrocities in the city of Mykolaiv. Um, although again, I think nothing quite as brutal as Bucha. On the other hand, we know what happened in Bucha because Ukraine has fully retaken the. The city, so it's possible that we may see more of these kinds of actions as Ukraine takes back more and more territory. I think what what is important to remember here, and The Economist had a really interesting piece about this, is the extent to which Russia has sort of habitually engaged in these kinds of actions over the last few decades. So, during the first and second Chechen wars in the 1990s and then the early 2000s, the Russian military committed just absolutely horrific crimes in Chechnya and really leveled the city of of Grozny um and one of the things that the economist story writes uh, citing a social anthropologist whose name is Elena Racheva who reported on the Ukraine war in 2014 for uh the now defunct uh, independent Russian outlet Novaya Gazeta is that she's sort of arguing that the the trauma experienced by members of the Russian military in those previous conflicts has kind of spiraled that there's a culture of aggression and brutality within the military such that people who you know saw such acts being committed or even committed themselves didn't haven't gotten the help they need aren't being supported and sort of finding their way out of that moral injury and then what happens is that you end up creating a fighting force under which these circumstances just repeat and repeat and repeat so, well, Scott, I think you're obviously right that, you know, there's there's an element of contingency here and it's sort of difficult to disentangle which actions were taken because, you know, someone snapped and which actions were taken because there was a direct order from the top. It's obviously clear that there's something particularly rotten within the Russian military right now. Again, not letting any other militaries off the hook, but I think that the the specific problems in the Russian force seem very, very clear at this point.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. There was a really interesting uh, podcast, and I'm blanking on the author, but I'll try and remember and put it in the show notes. I was listening to discussing some of the internal like discipline uh, and kind of hazing practices of Russian units in the Russian military, including for conscripts. I remember a lot of the Russian military is conscripts. They're not people who are volunteering. These are not professionals. These are people who are being compelled to show up. Um, I don't know the composition of foreign units. I know there were rumors or some reports of some Chechen units that we know are fighting in Ukraine, being involved in Bucha at different points. I don't know if they were the only ones or even predominantly the ones that were involved in the occupation of the city. I, I think we're maybe waiting to find that out still. But, you know, the truth is that these things aren't totally distinct, right? There's an idea of, like, if you have a deliberate policy, you'll have a command order coming down. But commanders very well might be negligent in how they structure Their discipline for their troops, the culture that they instill, um, there is this delicate balance. You always strike and that a lot of people have written about for centuries now, really, where you need an army that is disciplined and follows orders, but also is willing to kill for you. And that requires a a type of socialization that's, that's complicated and it has a dark side. So it's not always just a clear line between these two. Where the line will come out is if there is ever an accountability mechanism in place a trial, um, because there you will have to establish a line of orders of deliberate behavior, or at least of negligent behavior, depending on the law being applied and the standards being applied, to be able to hold commanders of a high, high enough level that they're not directly involved, responsible or not. Uh, that can be a high bar. So we'll have to wait and see as more evidence is collected. Uh, You know, I I haven't seen the evidence necessarily to confirm that that is the main, this is a deliberate Russian policy ordered by Vladimir Putin all the way down. I'm not sure that's what anyone is actually saying at this point. But there's certainly an element of no awareness, if not deliberateness, involved in, in aspects of this.
1: So l- let's turn to the question of what the response might be. So a few weeks ago, when we had uh, Shimon Keitner on the podcast, you know, we talked about some of the possible responses under international law, we can talk about that more um, as well if we want, but I, I want to focus on the responses from um sort of specific countries and 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 particular start with the with the US and and since we have mali we have our, our congressional expert here i'm i'm curious you know we often talk about uh, the executive branch uh, obviously cuz that's sort of the the chief player in foreign relations but congress has a big role to play as well how how has this report i mean bucha in particular but just the increasing report of russian atrocities you know, how is that playing out in congress and and you know should we expect that to change in any meaningful way how congress is approaching things like sanctions on, on Russia or, or support for Ukraine?
0: Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. And sort of, I think it's helpful to kind of zoom out a little bit and look at the trajectory of what Congress has and has not done in this space over the past couple of months. So there's a really great story in the Washington Post over the weekend um, from Mike DeBonis, who's one of the post-congressional correspondents that sort of takes us back to pre-invasion when Chuck Schumer says, like, we're really close to a deal to sanction Russia over just like amassing troops at the border with Ukraine. And then that sort of, that falls apart um, in early February. And then it takes until a couple of weeks ago when Congress put about $13.5 billion of spending aid to, to Ukraine, um, various things in its big omnibus spending bill for Congress really to do something legislatively. They've yet to pass any kind of standalone legislation um, responding to the the crisis in, in Ukraine. And it's I think part of why this is happening is coming, frankly, from both sides of the aisle. So on the Democratic side, there's this sense that congressional Democrats don't want to get out ahead of what the Biden administration is doing. And you you all are more expert than I on um, the wisdom of the the Biden administration's approach, but it is it's pretty clear to me at least that congressional Democrats are saying like we're just going to do what what the Biden administration wants. We're not going to try and um, outpace their efforts. Whereas on the Republican side, um, there is this again, as we've seen increasingly in Congress in recent decades, this effort. And desire to just, you know, make a precedent of the opposite party look bad, even if we're talking about foreign policy, which more historically has been a place where, Politics stops at the water's edge. The idea that we we maybe don't see as much um, as much partisanship. So you have Republicans saying they want Biden to do more, they want him to do it faster. You have Democrats not wanting to say take up legislation that goes beyond what the the Biden administration is pushing for. You also have Democrats um, sort of okay with achieving the same policy objectives simply by administrative action rather than by congressional action. And so I think the the sanctions that have been imposed are a good example of this. And I know Scott can talk more about this, which is that, you know, Congress could have Acted in that area, but Democrats in Congress were fine with the same outcome, um, just imposed by the administration. And so that I think it's the same outcome, but it's less congressional power. And we're going to talk more in a little bit about congressional power. Um, but I think it's it's a it that's a good specific case of something we've seen lots of over time, which is when a party has the White House, that party's members in Congress are. They're okay with using executive power to do things that they could also do in Congress uh, and achieve achieve the same outcome. Um, The last thing I'll say is that once the the House did act a couple of weeks ago on um, some legislation and they sent it over to the Senate where it has met sort of the standard fate of things in the Senate, which is to say that. Uh, you know, the the Senate has tried to kind of speed up the process on this legislation a couple of times. And then individual Republican senators have said, oh, no, I have this thing that I want in the bill, and I'm not going to consent to speed up the process until you respond to my criticism. Started um, uh, with Mike Crapo, an objection related to banning oil imports. And then there was one from Rand Paul. Now there's one from John Cornyn. So it's, it's, um, the sort of depth of the problem and the seriousness of it, as you all were talking about in relation specifically to this this um, mounting evidence of war crimes, is even with that all present, we are the U.S. Congress is still finding itself in its usual pathologies.
3: I, no surprise there, I guess, on Congress's side to some extent. Uh, you know, the the thing that's kind of a, no, notable here, I think, is like Congress is actually there's not a ton that Congress could do. Other than appropriate more money slash give more material and equipment, I think, at this point. Economic sanctions, the executive branch has pretty much all the authority it could possibly have. Usually you see Congress stepping in to impose more sanctions when they want the executive branch to do more. And there was talk about that, particularly around energy sector, saying, well, we want to push the Biden administration to do more on this. The Biden administration pushed back saying, look, it's a really delicate balancing act. I'm inferring this is what they said, but this is what experts say, and I'm guessing these are the talking points. They said, "Look, it's a really delicate balancing act because it could have global economic ramifications, economic ramifications for Europe that frankly could bear on their military preparation if Russia were to take broader military action. So we need to have flexibility there. So please don't do that." And it seems to have gone nowhere in the Democratic caucus, probably wisely, in my view, honestly. Other things that con- the one thing Congress could do in this case, particularly, is it could. Just begin to tamp down some of its hostility to the International Criminal Court, which currently has jurisdiction over the events happening in Ukraine, not over the crime of aggression, which would be most relevant to Vladimir Putin, but over the things actually happening on the ground, is actively investigating them. The Biden administration says it wants to work with them. But Congress has numerous times in recent years imposed statutorily like major restrictions on this, aided by the Trump administration, which of course had sanctions on ICC personnel uh, until just last year, as people may recall. But that's kind of a, a, always a tricky issue. We still have a, a law on the books, the Hague Invasion Act, as a lot of people call it, that allows the U.S. military to invade any country and liberate uh, U.S. soldiers or a national of an allied country that's being held by the International Criminal Court on their behalf. That's pretty wild, <laughs> uh, thing to have on the book. Look,
2: Scott, you never know when that might come in handy. It's
3: it is amazing. It's one of the more amazing laws on the books. I will just say it's one of my personal favorites when you're studying AUMFs to remember we have one against the International Criminal Court. You know, I we've seen heard some like interesting things from like particularly Senate Republicans, some folks on the House, like talk about international accountability, and occasionally even referencing the ICC in a way, saying like maybe we should use it here. That's interesting. I want to see if that goes anywhere and maybe opens up a little door to more cooperation here.
1: Scott, I'm I'm curious. I I do want to spend a minute on this. So, so just so we're all on the same page, right? Uh, And you know about this more than I do, right? But the the Rome Treaty, right, Uh, which is the thing that countries sign onto as part of the ICC, right. Neither the U.S. nor Russia are currently signatories, right? They withdraw their They withdrew their signatures at some point. So, when you talk about America being more friendly to the ICC. Is that because that would directly help the ICC in any sort of investigation or prosecution of Russian war crimes, or because it's just a little hard for the US to talk about how much of a horrible violation of international law this is when the US itself has a we're going to invade the Hague if necessary <laughs> a statute on the books. And it's kind of a, a, an optics thing.
3: It's a little bit of both. We have seen provisions in NDAAs and elsewhere, and I cannot recall with confidence whether they actually made it into final bills or not. You may know, Molly. But I know we've seen a handful of times random provisions basically saying we're prohibiting cooperation with the ICC in various regards, particularly in the last few years since the ICC launched investigation into Afghanistan. I, I don't believe any of them made them into final NDAs, but I'll be honest, I did not read the last NDAA as closely as I used to read these things. So they may be in there. But I just haven't seen it yet. I will still get to it, guys. I promise. <laughs> That's um, God, that's this is way for. Babies take away from my NDA reading time, which is sad. <laughs> the thing that's really notable here is actually like the Biden administration is actually in a bit of a tricky position here. So the Biden administration withdrew the sanctions on the ICC in April last year, came out with a statement where they said, uh, and I'm just going to read it here because I actually pulled it down for exact to know exactly this thing. We maintain our longstanding objection to the court's efforts to assert jurisdiction over personnel of non-states parties such as the United States and Israel. That includes Russia too. Um so if you take this statement literally then you would say no we don't support the ICC prosecuting Russia. Now look what I think they're going to say is that we don't support the ICC prosecuting parties soldiers or citizen nationals of non parties That are involved in conflicts where they're allowed under national law because they're talking about Afghanistan for U.S. troops and they're saying, well, U.S. troops were in Afghanistan at the state's intervention. Israel-Palestine, a little tricky to square there, but (laughs) we'll see how they can square that. It is always the the classic sui generis situation is Israel-Palestine. You can always distinguish it (laughs) one way or the other. So I think you'll see them caveat this and come out here. But it's an awkward position, and this is how the Biden administration felt like it had to square its relationship with the ICC before this. Again, I'm I'm hopeful that this will actually be a forcing moment to force a little more reason into this relationship. Not a lot more. We're not joining the ICC, guys. It's not going to happen anytime soon. Probably not in our lifetimes. But, you know, we could see openness to allowing the Justice Department cooperate in these investigations or the intelligence community or the FBI sending forensic experts, things like that. That could help the court a lot and help build a relationship uh, and bring accountability to a situation that everyone agrees on all sides of the aisle needs to have some accountability brought to it. Well, let's go from one situation of... A head of state in need of some accountability to another one of a head of state in need of accountability here at home. Because we have been getting some interesting rumblings out of the January 6th committee. A few months ago, I think towards the end of last year, beginning of this year, we began to hear a lot of chatter in media circles, particularly among reporters covering and paying attention to the January 6th committee about the fact that they were considering a criminal referral. Will they actually end up referring anyone? for a prosecution to the Justice Department. Not something that Congress routinely does by any stretch of the imagination. Does do sometimes, just as this committee has done a couple of times now, in the context of contempt of Congress, when you have a witness who refuses to comply with a subpoena, they refer them to the Justice Department to prosecute, but not normally for other crimes. Uh, not that frequently, although I'm not, I'm not actually sure how frequently if, or if it's ever been done before. Nonetheless, it was something the committee was actively considering and talking about, uh, whether Deliberately or unintentionally through leaks to the media. This week, we've heard the that tide of conversation turn a particular direction, uh, particularly in a Politico piece, uh, Kyle Cheney and one other co author whose name's escaping me, apologies, uh, released, noting that quoting or citing to a number of committee members and other folks basically saying, well, we don't think referrals really necessary, and strongly implying that they're not intending to move forward on one for matters other than contempt of Congress, which would mean no referral for. President Trump, unless they subpoena him at some point. I'm curious as to what we think of this as a tactic, given concerns within Congress, within the public about the Justice Department and the extent to which it is actively pursuing a criminal investigation, whether it is and the extent to which it is taking it seriously and for what, and uh, whether the committee is doing something that's wisely going to departisize that sort of investigation or maybe giving away too much control of the situation to a Justice Department that may not be doing what it wants to do. Molly, let me start with you as one of our, our, our premier Congress watcher and one of our experts working on January 6th stuff. What's your sense about how this debate has kind of ha- occurred for the last few months and where it seems to be landing, which is rejecting this idea of a criminal referral that it seems like committee members were actually themselves bringing up a few months ago?
0: So I'll admit that I have always been a little bit puzzled by this conversation, because as you sort of alluded to in your opening comments, like Congress referring someone to the Justice Department for prosecution, I'm using vigorous air quotes uh, as I as I do that, with the exception of some things like contempt of Congress, like you just mentioned, like it's it would be an entirely symbolic move. You know, Congress has no power to tell the Justice Department to start prosecuting someone, that that power rests with the Justice Department. It's the Justice Department's job to, you know, go through the process of deciding who it will and will not prosecute for um, for what. There's not even a kind of... Uh, so we know, for example, in the in the context of contempt um, citations, that there is a formal set of rules and procedures that Congress goes through to find someone in contempt and to refer them to um, to the Justice Department for prosecution. But you know, for these sort of more like amorphous symbolic referrals, there's there's no there are no procedures. There's no you know a first a committee has to act, and then there's a vote of the whole House. And it just as in that Politico piece that you mentioned, Scott. um, Zoe so Lofgren, who's the, uh, one of the members of the select committee and also the chair of the Committee on House Administration, longtime House member involved in um, beginning as a staffer uh, in uh, the, the Nixon impeachment. She's been involved in all of the uh, 20th century presidential and 21st century presidential impeachments. Um, she says, a referral doesn't mean anything, uh, it has no legal weight whatsoever. So this is all to say that I've been puzzled by kind of why are we talking about this? There's so much else that the committee is doing, needs to be doing, and it's just not clear to me what the value of doing a lot of hand-wringing about will they or won't they do something entirely symbolic um, and with, as, as Loughran said, sort of no legal weight. Like, why are we having this conversation?
2: I I love that Lofgren quote as well, not only because, as Molly points out, she has pulled off the impeachment hat trick, perhaps the only person to to do such a thing in American history, actually, but because congressional committees have sent a lot of criminal referrals in the last few years, um, and usually they are breathlessly reported on, and so it was kind of refreshing to see a member of Congress just say, yeah, you know what, this is essentially just, you know, sending a letter that says... Pretty pleased. I mean, I think the the dynamics here are interesting for a couple of reasons. Obviously, sending such a referral would be another way to put pressure on Merrick Garland, who's been facing a lot of criticism recently for not, you know, making clear uh, whether or not the department is investigating Trump personally for any criminal culpability involving January sixth. I think what what I found interesting in the Politico piece is that it, it kind of suggests that. If the committee ever thought that was necessary, which it it seems like they did, since as you pointed out, Scott, they were initially talking about this a few months ago, that urgency on their part may have ebbed precisely because of this recent ruling in uh, U.S. District Court in California saying that uh, Trump more likely than not committed obstruction and conspiracy against the United States uh, relating to his effort to block the certification of the electoral vote. This is in connection to Congress's efforts to get documents from John Eastman. And so Lofgren's quote is uh, is saying, you know, not only our referral doesn't mean anything, but I'm pretty sure the Department of Justice has read last week's opinion. They don't need me to tell them that it exists. Um, so that kind of suggested to me that maybe that's, there's a little bit of a pressure release valve. And, you know, having a opinion from a judge removes this sort of sheen of politicization that you might get if, say, a congressional committee, which is primarily made up of Democrats, sent this kind of referral to the Justice Department. I'm not saying that that is how it should work, but I do think that we know that Garland is somebody who really prizes being seen as above politics. He's a judge. He's not somebody who has experience in Congress. I think it it makes a lot of sense for the committee to say, you know what, like, This guy is being spoken to by his own people. We don't need to wade into this and create problems. I also think, honestly, that there is an element to which the January 6th investigation is kind of a a big test of what Congress can do on its own. We saw so much under the Trump administration how Congress was really stymied by an executive branch that was really blocking it at every path. And that repeatedly went to the courts to try to enforce subpoenas and was stymied there as well. And so there's a little bit of sort of, you know, here seeing what Congress can do when it strikes out on its own Article 1, going its own path. And I do think that symbolically in that element, there's a little bit of, you know, it's a bit demeaning for Congress to have to go to the Justice Department and say, pretty please, won't you look into this? When it can on its own put out a report saying we think that Trump violated, you know, X, Y, and Z statutes. Here's our reasoning, and here's the way we would recommend to change these statutes so it's clearer that he violated them, which is what they've they've hinted that they would do. So I can understand their reasoning. I can see Alan is making a face as I talk, so I'm sure he objects. But this path makes a lot of sense to me.
1: What did we call that on a previous podcast? Team uh Team Scrunchy face? Consternation. Team consternation face. So one of our one of our listeners will will remind us. Uh yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I I can see why the committee could decide that it wants to send a referral. I could see why the committee could decide that it doesn't want to send a referral. But I will admit to finding Lofgren's Yeah, referrals don't really mean anything. They're just symbolic to be very odd, because a lot of what Congress does is just symbolic. That's sort of in the nature of politics. And I I don't think that somehow a court opinion is fungible with the January 6th committee. They're, They're just different things, right? If Trump is indicted, it will be the most politically controversial, it'll be the kind of high, I think literally the highest profile indictment in American history, right? Now, one can conclude from that, that Therefore, a referral is inappropriate because we don't want to bring Congress into this because Congress is political. Or one could conclude that a referral is very appropriate because that just adds another branch of government supporting this unprecedented breaking of norms, which is that you don't go after political opponents, right? Unless there's a very good reason to. Uh, and and I, although obviously there are most, mostly Democrats in this committee, it's not just Democrats. It's two very conservative Republicans, one of whom... Is although increasingly being repudiated by her party, is still I think incredibly uh, well thought of by more traditional Republicans, and I think I'm talking about Liz Cheney here, and I think that matters for something. So you know, it, again, it's an interesting question on the merits, but it does strike me as an odd thing to say. Oh, criminal referrals don't really mean anything. So like, don't don't focus on that. And also, if they don't mean anything, should we just never do them again? It also sets kind of an odd precedent going forward. Because presumably, Congress wants to preserve its ability to send criminal referrals. And so, again, it's another, I, I don't know, I am I am puzzled. Maybe maybe the way to put it is I am puzzled by Molly being puzzled over why we are puzzled over uh, the criminal referral question.
0: It's, it's puzzles all the way down. It's puzzles um, all the way down. So I guess I'll add two things. One is to go back to something that Quinto was talking about, which is on kind of If it is the case that the facts on the ground have changed and that has led to a change in the committee's posture around the prospect of a criminal referral, Quinta talked about um, the decision in the Eastman case. Another possibility is we have seen come out over the past week or two reports that um, there is a grand jury that the Justice Department has convened that is doing some investigative work around um, January 6th. And so it could also be the case that the committee sees that. says, you know, it looks like maybe the Justice Department is doing something already, we can sort of dial back our rhetoric around this idea of a criminal referral. I think that the other thing I bring up is that I think just fundamentally for me, I don't see it as Congress's job to tell Merrick Garland what to do. I mean, I have, I think here and elsewhere, vigorously said that it is also not the court's job to micromanage what Congress does. So similarly, it's not Congress's job to micromanage the prosecution decisions of the Department of Justice. And certainly if the idea is that like, people think Merrick Garland needs political cover to go after trump in court um it's definitely not congress's responsibility to provide political cover to the justice department it's an independent co-equal branch of government that has plenty of its own responsibilities that it needs to fulfill and i just don't i personally do not put high on my list of priorities congress sort of telling the telling justice department what to do giving the justice department cover it's it's a different branch and it has its own um its own responsibilities here
3: so, I don't disagree with that. But I, I do think it's worth thinking about what the committee may be trading away in relying on these other sources. Because the, the political article really seems to suggest look, we've got the Eastman decision out of the court in California. We have the civil judgment decision, both of which kind of like say, oh, there seems like there's a lot of evidence Trump was doing some bad stuff here. But uh, under different standards, the Eastman decision is limited strictly to Eastman uh, and relevant conduct. Uh, the civil decisions, Limited to a similarly, a, a more limited set of facts and conduct, including the available facts available at the time was filed, which is a while ago now. And then they say, uh, and you know, we have this hint that the Justice Department is doing something. Where it strikes me that there is potentially something being traded away a little bit here is shaping the scope of that investigation or the types of charges you might want to see brought. Uh, now, maybe this isn't something in Congress's interest, as, as you note, Molly, um, and, and that's possible, right? And, like, we live in this weird era where, like, we're we're all, particularly lawyers, are trained to think about separation of powers being, like, the real dividing line, but actual partisan divides are as insignificant, if not the more important divide in a lot of different contexts in kind of the American political system. So the question is, like, to what extent is Garland going to be influenced or even feel like he gets top cover if he gets a referral? And that's kind of, like... of the question here, right? Like, If he gets this referral, is he going to see it as a political sandbag that he then is now tainting his pure investigation that he's doing free of political interference? Or is it going to be, look, I've got a lot of other persuasive authorities. I've got this Eastman decision. I've got the civil decision. uh, I've got the views of this one random DA who's decided to speak out. And I've got now the House behind me saying, these are all persuasive, not binding, but persuasive arguments as to why I have a legitimate basis for pursuing this decision. And oh, by the way, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger are on board with this. I'm not sure that that's zero value. Uh, I'm not sure it is value either. A lot of it depends on how Garland thinks about his role and the people around him, right? But although, you know, he is some guy, a, a kind of traditional legal thinker who I think might take the separation of powers angles, not on a binding level, but on a persuasive level, influential. The Zoe Lofkin quote, quote you noted is actually true of, like, you know, most of the sources we have, none of them actually matter. None of them have any legal effect. The Eastman decision, all these decisions, they're all just persuasive. Um, they're all things that might help in the court of public opinion or internally in the Justice Department to say, we want to do this set of actions. So what's a committee giving away if they don't do something like this? They're are arguably giving away again the, the fact that they have the fullest scope of facts. They're actually the only people, except for maybe the Justice Department on its own, who's looked at this full scope of facts around this and has been able to compare it to the full range of criminal options, um, criminal law options. And we know they've recruited criminal law lawyers. We know they're thinking about this, at least in part, through a criminal law lens. Now, maybe that's not necessary, maybe they're not worried about it, but I could see that they are, there are trade-offs here, and they might be, depending on how this plays out, something that, in hindsight, they're going to regret if Garland come forward with one charge on one count on a very constrained set of facts. Then again, maybe that's because that's the strongest set of facts, and it's best to let Garland free you to do that. What I will say is that I'd be surprised, even if we don't get a formal referral, I still think... They're going to have to think about this stuff in the context of criminal law. And if they don't do that, I think that's kind of lost opportunity, right? Like their report, their mandate only extends to an elocution of the facts and actually policy recommendations. So if they're thinking about writing a report that brings in elements of criminal law and says, well, these are the facts we're comparing it against, that like does a lot of the work of a referral anyway.
2: But Scott, they've already done that repeatedly the the east in the eastman case that ruling is largely based on a filing that the committee made right. making the same arguments that the judge made saying that trump is culpable under 1512 right. And 371. And Liz Cheney has said repeatedly that she thinks that Trump violated 1512 and that she intends to write that up in the report. So it's not like the committee isn't thinking about criminal law and this is their one shot. They've made extremely clear that they're thinking about criminal law, what specific statutes they're thinking about. They they laid this out in a filing, which we wrote up at Lawfare as a bombshell. So it's just not clear to me what the difference is if you put it on a different piece of paper with a different letterhead like garland already knows what they think
3: i think that i think that's my point right like if you are hesitant to engage in a referral like why is that so substantially different then just putting it into a report that you then release to the public with all the information. It's all just persuasive authority.
2: Oh, I mean, I think it's it's the it's like saying per my last email, right? I mean, like they've already done it. Uh, I I think uh, that I, think- I don't
1: think that's right. I th- I think that's I think that's making it too easy for the for the committee, right? I I think that you know, given that they have done criminal referrals in the past, right? So uh,
0: they've yeah. done criminal referrals in the past in a context where like that is what is required of them. If someone has failed to comply with a, I shouldn't say required, but like if they want to hold someone in contempt of Congress, that is like what the law calls for is referral, like a vote of the, the, and then a referral for, um, for prosecution. And I just, I simply, again, this sort of restating something I said before, I simply don't see why we are engaging in so much hand wringing over like this specific question about a referral that the Justice Department doesn't have to do anything with when the committee has so much else it is doing of consequence.
3: I don't really agree that I think that gets to like my fundamental point, which is that if you are writing a report that you're releasing to the public that says we have this evidence that we think the president has violated these criminal statutes then I'm not sure what the advantage is you're gaining by not doing the criminal referral. Like, is it really that you think the referral is what's going to politicize this, not publishing the public report, accusing of this criminal conduct. I'm just not sure the Delta is that big. So I'm not sure like that's actually a decision that's significant. as it's getting tied in here. And the fact that they're not going to formally do a referral, maybe for like internal political reasons, because like, Liz Cheney and Adam McKinsey are less comfortable with it or something else. Uh, You know, that's, I agree. Like, I don't think that's actually the big point here. The bigger question is whether they're going to present a record with an eye towards criminal law that's going to make a case under criminal law. It sounds like they're going to do that regardless.
0: And I guess the last thing that I'll say is that you sort of in passing uh, referenced like is there a political reason um, in terms of building a coalition within the committee with Cheney and Kinsinger and like that maybe that's why they're stepping away from this and I think that like one of the things that is remarkable about this committee is its unanimity in its actions so far and so if you are right Scott and that that's part of the story here then like maybe that is actually a strong enough equity and that's the reason not to do it I'm just spec wildly here. But a lot of the power of the committee is the fact that it has done everything it has done publicly on a unanimous vote. I have joked that it might be the only congressional committee in history where every vote it takes is unanimous. But I I think it's important. Um, And so I actually don't think that's like a passing consideration here. I think it might actually be more, um, more central to what's happening.
2: Well... Let us discuss another form of accountability for, uh, in this case, governments rather than government officials, by which I mean we are now going to pivot uh, quite sharply and talk about Torres v. Department of Public Safety, a Supreme Court case on which the court recently heard arguments. So. This is pretty in the weeds. Bear with me, listeners. It's about whether Congress can authorize private citizens to sue non-consenting state governments under constitutional war powers, uh, a term that we often think about relating to Article 2, but Article 1 has them as well. Uh, So specifically, it regards the constitutionality of provisions of the Uniform Services Employment and Reemployment Rights Act, which has the strange acronym of USARA, I think is how you pronounce that. Uh, which authorizes service members to sue their employers uh, for damages relating to employment discrimination. So the question is, does that also allow them to sue state government employers, given that good old doctrine of sovereign immunity? So the USARA passed in 1994 under uh, Congressional War Powers Authority. The question that the court is considering here is whether that means that the statute falls under a recognized exception to sovereign immunity. So I want to get Molly's thoughts on this because, of course, it uh, touches on congressional power. But before we do that, Scott, I know you've been following the case pretty closely. Did you have any thoughts about oral arguments?
3: Yeah, it's a really interesting case and really interesting intersection of a bunch of areas of law. The oral argument is worth listening to if you are a law nerd because it basically does this big catalog of Congress's powers. Or if
1: you want to relive your PTSD from studying Fed courts in law yes. school, which is the effect it had on me. My God, what a incredible cesspool of doctrine. It is wild.
3: I mean, it hits like This, bankruptcy. listeners,
0: is why you should not go to law school.
3: <laughs> yeah, look- Some of us love it, all right? Some of us get off on it, it's fine. (laughs) And it's great because I love this oral argument. I thought it was super entertaining. You hit the 11th Amendment coming in, you got the bankruptcy clause, you got the Indian Commerce Clause. It is wild. They are all over the place and it's great. Uh, And the reason they have to do this is because we've got this crazy doctrine about state sovereign immunity that asks the question, okay, when can states be sued? When states? volunteer themselves to be sued, given consent to be sued at some point in their history with the Republic. And where we've come out on it is essentially this idea that the states consented to a certain idea about when they would be able to be sued as part of the structure of the Constitution. That and in addition to 14th Amendment Section 5, that's the spot where everyone agrees, okay, states can be sued for federal laws enacted pursuant to that. Otherwise, it's become this very patchwork analysis saying, well, we have to think of each provision of the Constitution that gives power to the federal government and think about, well, was this something that the states understood at the time that they would be sued under? This is a crazy thing to have to analyze because states aren't unitary actors, nor do we can we read their minds, right? Like state legislatures don't vote for one thing because of all one reason. So you have different... Uh, Actors, different litigators, different court justices able to look at this history and draw really different conclusions through this kind of originalist lens saying, what was the intent here uh, over to what extent the federal government can do this to the states and state sovereign immunity? And what I think is really interesting that's worth getting into is like... This gives us a lens here about how these justices, a lot of who are new to the court at this point or haven't had much chance to weigh in on national security issues, think about national security. Because national security is a topic actually where a lot of the authority the Constitution gives is actually rooted in Congress. The president has the executive power and the commander-in-chief clause, and that's kind of it, really. Some stuff about diplomats and control and stuff like that. But a lot of the core powers are actually in Article 1, um, about Congress's ability to you know, stand up armies and raise navies and all these other things that are more arguably more fundamental to how you actually like, you know, equip and maintain a military. And the question here that's being raised is not only like how important are those in the constitutional hierarchy, like were these seen as a sign of something that would be delegated by the states, but how broad are these authorities? You know, is this idea that this ability to basically protect veterans uh, and service members from discrimination by state agencies, is that inherent in the ability to raise an army or not? And the degree of scrutiny you give to that question reflects a lot of, uh, frankly, how you're going to think about national security in relation to other constitutional principles, values. As well, I suspect, and so you can line this case up with like the recent Navy SEALs decision about uh, COVID mandate that was a, that was a denial of like a preliminary order, but still is kind of interesting breakdown. That Buzabea decision we've talked about, and you begin to see like these really interesting little snippets about how justices think about these problems, and it's different than how the court did five years ago because we've had so much turnover. So I I agree with Scott that this is
1: an important or has the potential to be an important case about war powers generally, because in the process of analyzing these, I really, I I cannot I cannot emphasize enough just how complicated and technical these uh, Fed courts questions are.
2: I should say it took me like 30 minutes to figure out how on earth to write that intro. It is, it's really complicated. <laughs>
1: yeah, and after th- and after three years of law school, it would have taken you 45 minutes, right? It's, it doesn't get any clearer, unfortunately, right? Uh, and so I think Scott's totally right that in the process of answering this very technical question, the court might tell us uh, quite a bit about the war powers, uh, uh, about Congress's war powers. But I will say, I think a lot of people view that as a feature, and, and that's kind of the reason we're talking about it on this podcast, because it's not really a case about war powers. I mean, it, it is, obviously, but like it's, it's much more a case about sovereign immunity, per se. But I find this actually quite frustrating, because part of the nature of national security law is that because so much of it is not justiciable, courts are not in a position to rule on the things people actually care about. So when they do rule on things like the War Powers Clause, it is often in this like very indirect sort of way um, through this interestingly kind of postured case. Now, that doesn't mean that what the court says about the War Powers won't be useful holding or most likely dicta, but it, it does make for, I think, a slightly awkward procedural posture for the court to do its best thinking about War Powers in this particular case because Fundamentally, this case is about something very different. And and so I'm not really looking forward. On the one hand, I'm looking forward to reading the opinion, but I'm not looking forward to lawyers and analysts and law professor types like me spending the next five years parsing over every random word that this opinion vaguely says about the War Powers Clause because the uh, guidance that we get from the Supreme Court is so meager that um, this is the best we're going to get for several years. So that that's my sort of grumpy meta reflection on on this case,
3: but of course we'll have to see what the Supreme Court ultimately says. I just want to respond quickly to one point you raised here about this that maybe not, arguably not being a war power decision squarely, which which I actually think it it is more fundamentally and may actually be more important that people see moving forward because we're entering this weird moment where we're, we are seeing these arguments pop up in efforts like. Well, this case in Texas, uh, efforts like uh, in Florida where we see a governor trying to stand up his own state militia separate from the separate militia, at times different governors trying to put restraints on how their troops can be used for different types of efforts, both on the Democratic and the Republican side. Think about how National Guard troops were used or kind of used in regard to D.C. in 2020 in in response to Black Lives Matters related protests uh, and the controversy around that, although a little more complicated different in a lot of ways legally about how that came out. But nonetheless, it raises these questions about how federalism intersects with our national military apparatus that haven't really been serious at issue in a really long time, but are acquiring political salience. And that's why you see this case here. Like It's crazy the state of Texas decided to punish a service member because he was injured during his military service overseas. That's what they did here uh, in violation of federal law. And they're willing to do it and argue their ability to do it all the way to the Supreme Court. That seems something that politically would have seemed really wild 10 or 20 years ago. But there is a market for this federalism pushback against federal authority in these previously, you know, uncharted domains. And I think particularly in the Navy SEALs case we saw, which was, you know, again about a COVID mandate against the where it was actually being stayed, we saw three justices come out and say, Oh, we actually think this order should be stayed. These Navy SEALs should be allowed to remain or the the Defense Department should be compelled to allow them to remain in the um, line of duty in the regular order of combat, even though the military doesn't want to do that and the president doesn't want to do that. That's a wild conclusion if you think about how we've thought about the commander in chief authority for the last, frankly, several centuries. And the fact that three justices got there, in my mind, tells us that we're actually entering a moment where these questions are more unsettled than they have seemed to be for a lot of the last century in a really interesting way.
0: So um, I'm going to make like a couple more general observations, and they sort of the first one builds on Scott's last point about um, sort of the federalism piece of this and the degree to which like Scott, you gave a bunch of examples of places where courts having to litigate what might have previously seemed like kind of bonkers federalism questions in the context of national security. But I think it's important to remember that like there are all kinds of questions that are currently being litigated that seem kind of bonkers in a in like a long historical federalism context that that results from what I would argue is this like big, broader nationalization of politics and these incentives that state level actors have to pursue Kind of salient national political arguments through through the courts, um, because like they see that as the highest political value approach. So I think even though like this is a very weedsy case about something specific um, that does apparently touch on basically everything that you learn in Fed course class, uh, I think it does fit into that kind of broader political uh, moment that we're having. The other thing that I will say that I uh, felt like when I was reading about this decision is that it is ironic to me to read a case about congressional war powers that is of this nature, when usually what we are trying to do, we, people who think Congress should be a stronger institution, um, are trying to get Congress to like vigorously exercise its war powers in I don't want to say real ways, but in in bigger, uh bigger, more consequential ways, as opposed to continuing to let the executive branch um, usurp power from the legislative branch. And so the idea that like this is the conversation we're having about congressional war powers is sort of ironic to me, um, as someone who thinks that like there are lots of, you know, Scott and I have written at length trying to convince people they should care about. The procedures for reviewing arms sales like those are those are the kinds of um war powers questions that I think like are of of a lot of consequence and so that this is the conversation that this this is how the court is taking up this question it's just sort of interesting to me
3: yeah i I think that's right uh, it's interesting and I want to go back to just before you wrap this idea about what this might tell us about where the court's going around the set of questions right because what's kind of interesting is that we've gotten a sense about where a few justices seem to be landing where they might not have been before. Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett, and Justice Breyer seemed to, across all three of the cases I mentioned, be the ones that are kind of most in alignment. For Justice Barrett, that's kind of particularly surprising, particularly in the Navy SEALs case because that's where you saw, you know, a free exercise claim or religious practice claim on the other side. Uh, and so it seems that like she might be very sympathetic to, but seemed to be, uh, you know, kind of come into line with Kavanaugh uh, and the Chief Justice Roberts on that particular point. And they, along with Roberts and Kagan to a substantial extent, seemed to form like that kind of core five that seems to be pretty solidly in support of a pretty conventional view of broad government authority in these sorts of areas. But then we see Gorsuch, we see Alito kind of surprisingly, we see Thomas kind of oddly in various ways, uh, and, and we're inferring their decisions in this case a little bit from their oral arguments, so make them out a little differently. All kind of to various extents seeming to be willing to really question um, these national security assumptions. For Thomas, that's always hard to read. He didn't join in the Navy SEALs case, that kind of joint dissent that Alito and Gorsuch did, if I, I think I have that right. So don't know 100% his logic, but like is willing to kind of push against the this broad view of authority, although in other areas, he's like a very strong federal executive branch, national security person. And then with Justice Sotomayor, who's kind of the interesting case, as in at least Abu Zubaydah, she was persuaded to go with Gorsuch and say, hey, like, I don't think we should be giving the government this much deference in this case. Now, there are different countervailing balances, different factors on the other side. But I think it does give you a little bit of a sense about how inclined towards deference some of these justices are on national security, foreign relations questions, uh, at least kind of more categorically versus other interests. And it does send like that we're in a little bit of a change phase here because, of course, Breyer's leaving. We don't know how KBJ is going to fit into this because she appears to be the Supreme Court Justice. And that might bring you down around certain issues to the point that you begin to lose that core majority. And, and you could get persuaded otherwise and, and begin to see a little bit of crimping in around the edges uh, around certain aspects of national security law and policy in good ways or in bad ways. So I think it's a case worth watching along with all these other cases, and I'm sure we'll see more cases along these lines on the docket uh, sometime in the next few years. Unfortunately, we are out of time, so we'll have to leave the conversation there. But we, of course, would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to think about as you go about your week. Alan, let me start with you.
1: Uh, so mine is, uh, I think, an interesting combination of of morbid and lovely at the same time. Uh, I was I was driving into work with my with my wife uh, Hannah uh, this morning, uh, and she excitedly told me that uh, uh, we can be interred in a forest, not in a cemetery. I was I was curious. My my interest was piqued, and it turns out she uh, was listening to the to NPR this morning, and she heard an advertisement for uh, Better Place Forests, which is this very interesting organization uh, that kind of buys land across the country and turns the land into forests and funds this by uh, having people basically buy a tree and then you get the rights to having your ashes and the ashes of your loved ones and of your pets. There are different pricing models um, spread under that tree where it can fertilize this beautiful oak. There are uh, different trees. You can choose your, your, your tree and you can have a little uh, memorial plaque uh, there. Um, and, and it goes to supporting this lovely, uh, lovely forest. So I don't know why that's my object lesson, but it I it, I, <laughs> I, I, know, I spent a lot of this morning looking at the really lovely website, uh, which is kind of interesting way to spend a morning. Um, so yeah, if, if you don't like cemeteries, uh, you can live eternity, um, you know, feeding a, a, a maple tree in a, in a lovely forest somewhere.
2: That is actually weird. Yeah, that's, way.
1: that's kind of what I thought it was sort of morbid, but in a really lovely way, maybe not even morbid, you know, death is just part of the process.
3: I love it. I have always wanted to be one of the people with a memorial bench committed to them oh, in the National Arboretum. Uh, that's my goal if I pre- much die prematurely, which hopefully I won't. <laughs> but if I do, remember that. I want a bench. But uh, this is a close. This, this kind of wraps in the same territory. But you can get a tree and then when it dies, turn it into a bench. I like that idea. Uh, Quinto, what do you have for us this week?
2: I have a, a downer object list, and I think more of a downer than Alan's because there's not really a sweet uplifting part to it. It is a truly astonishing, in every sense of the word, uh, New Yorker piece reported by the GOAT, Rachel Aviv, who is just consistently incredible. It's called How Un-Ivy Lake School Turned Against a Student, and is about a young woman who had an incredibly abusive childhood, went into foster care got into Penn, uh, took advantage of the university's programs for students who were first-generation or in the foster system, uh, got a Rhodes Scholarship, and then had the scholarship rescinded, uh, and the university went after her because, as Aviv writes, it seems that her abusive mother found out about all this and contacted the university and essentially said that she, the student uh, had been lying. And the university took this seriously, as did the Rhodes Trust, essentially on the grounds that this young woman, Mackenzie Fiersten, hadn't been abused enough, uh, that there were you know, slight inaccuracies in the essays that she submitted, that she said things like the the breathing tube that was put in her in the hospital after her mother pushed her down the stairs tasted metallic, even though it was plastic. So, you know, of course, she was a liar. It's a incredible story it has a lot to say about how the ivies and institutions like the roads sort of turn students trauma into a happy selling point for themselves and what happens when someone's trauma doesn't fit quite in a in a neat little box so for example firsten came from a upper middle class white household and was also abused but you know that that doesn't fit right and the the university sort of seemed to become extremely upset when it turned out that her her life didn't fit quite in the box that they thought it did. It, I mean, it really is an astonishing piece of, of journalism and just makes your blood absolutely boil. Um, so I absolutely recommend reading it and then, you know, figuring out something to do with all of your rage afterward, because it's Truly, one of the most shocking things I've read in a long yeah, time.
1: Yeah, I, I will second uh, Quinta's suggestion. It is an amazing piece. It is incredibly infuriating. I recommend that afterwards you go walk in a forest, maybe even a cemetery forest, uh, to a, a common forest. forest. And, and, and no, I mean, I, you know, as someone who works for an institution of higher learning, I mean, it really just does reflect on the just moral bankruptcy of of I mean, not just institutions of higher learning, but many of our institutions who are, are just, I mean, co opting the question of abuse and trauma in just the most grotesque way. And I'm I'm not going to turn this into like part of the culture war, but it is what what everyone thinks of the larger issues. um, I I, I think this is just unbelievably shameful and, and, and just, and and I'm both shocked, but not ultimately surprised that Penn continues to just stonewall in in the face of, of all of this, but we will see
3: investigative journalism at its absolute best. Well, for my object lesson this week, I am bringing back the recommendation I had the other week, but I spared because I didn't want to give too many television and movie recommendations. But we'll pass along this week. It also relates a little bit to a little bit of darkness and trauma, although it does interesting uh, things with it. That is a television show called Single Drunk Female uh, that is on Hulu, I think. I should check this. Uh, But I believe it's on Hulu. It is a so far single season, but I think it has been renewed for a second season now comedy about uh, a young woman with an alcohol problem and going through basically Alcoholics Anonymous in her first year in Alcoholics Anonymous. It is actually like frighteningly funny a little bit dark humor to say the least um for the challenges she goes through but has a really really phenomenal cast is really well acted really balances the drama the heaviness of a lot of the really real challenges um she encounters and for anybody who's ever dealt with anyone or known anyone who's gone through substance abuse problems like it's it, i i have a little bit and it strikes me as very real to a lot of my experiences and experiences i I've, I've, I've heard them relate and it is really really stunning incredibly well acted Really charming and funny. And just to top it off, it is set in a suburb of Boston and has such a menagerie of Boston accents and Massachusetts accents that just polishes it perfectly. It is just a wonderful, wonderful thing to watch. I highly recommend it. I can't wait for season two, which I think is coming, hopefully. I highly recommend you guys check it out. Molly, why don't you bring us home? What's your object lesson for this week?
0: So my object lesson is last week, the National Archives released online digitized records from the 1950 census. They are really, a, at least for me, were a sort of blast to dig into, I will say two things specifically. One is that um, when they digitized them and put them online, um, they used some uh, machine learning AI techniques to um, identify people's names. So there's a pretty um, remarkable transposition errors that happen in that process. Um, The other thing is, so um, uh, as a result, you may or may not, if you have family who were captured in the 1950 census and you are looking for them, you may or may not find them easily But I found some of my own family where I discovered that um, my great-grandfather was recorded by a 1950 census enumerator as, quote, the head of cereal department at Oats Company. This is vaguely consistent with what I understood my great-grandfather to do, which is um, he lived in New Jersey. He worked at at Quaker Oats. Um, I'm not sure anyone had ever told me that he was, quote, head of cereal department, but it was a real delight um, on Friday.
2: That's a serious responsibility
0: (laughs) to discover um, that that is at least how a census enumerator in 1950 captured what my great grandfather told uh, him or her about um, what he did
3: he was, of course, a Quaker with the hat and the thing. Uh,
0: he, was, he was none of The those. model
3: for the whole Oaks.
0: Um, he, was, uh, he was not that. Um, and like I said, I was aware that, that, that this is vaguely what he did, but no one had ever told me, no one ever described it to me as head of cereal department.
3: That's amazing. I will say, I went early in the pandemic when we were all really dwelling on our own mortality. I went on a deep family genealogy bender, uh, where I signed up for ancestry.com, which takes all of the census things and has OCR them, and then has helped you connect them with other people who have helped put together their family trees. And it's amazing what you can find going back to like you know the mid nineteenth century of your weird, of like in my case, my very multi generational like Irish American like twelve people in one household uh, sort of family households. It's it's super fascinating fascinating to look at and uh is super cool so i'm looking forward to checking that out
1: sadly for the children of of soviet immigrants uh the, the the genealogy trail just like stops very quickly at 1980 in my case so sadly i will have to wait a couple more decades before i can start trolling census records Though, so, so you know i could do, though though my my kid could i could i could do my uh my wife's side that'd be interesting
3: yeah, exactly. It's it's neat. it is a little it is a little hard and and frustrating when you get. I have a German side of my family. As soon as it hits Germany, completely lost. Irish and Irish in England, you can find stuff still going back for a while. But anything else, basically, you lose it. Particularly with the language, the language barrier. Well, unfortunately, for better or for worse, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. But remember that Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit Lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series, including our daily Lawfare podcast and our special series on the response to the January 6th insurrection, The Aftermath and be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer producer this week was Ian Enright of Good Rodeo. Our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan, and we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Alan Quinta, and our special guest, Molly Reynolds, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye.